The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Have we ignored Wittgenstein's clear message that we cannot know how language and our theories relate to the world? Are all our lofty descriptions about the nature of reality and metaphysics simply nonsense? Or was Wittgenstein wrong? And can we continue in our human quest to uncover the essential character of reality and our relationship to it? Joining us to debate language and reality are author of the best-selling book Zed, Joanna Kavanagh, philosopher and neuroscientist Ray Tallis, and post-realist philosopher and author of Closure, Hilary Lawson. If you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Maria Balaska. Thank you for joining for our debate on the unsayable. What we cannot speak about, we must pass over in silence, famously claimed the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein in his Tractatus Logicus Philosophicus, the centenary of which we are celebrating this year. Wittgenstein primarily had in mind the relationship between language and the world, and arguably the very idea of metaphysics. Yet, a century after Wittgenstein's concluding remark, many continue an attempt to uncover and express the ultimate meaning and nature of reality using our all-too-human language. Have we ignored Wittgenstein's clear message that we cannot express meaningfully how language and our theories relate to the world? Are all our metaphysical descriptions about the nature of reality simply nonsense? Or was Wittgenstein wrong, and can we go on with our quest to uncover the essential character of reality and our relationship to it? To explore the unsayable, we have got three brilliant speakers who I am delighted to present. Joanna Cavena is a multi-award winning author who writes about existentialism, class, the nature of truth, and quantum physics. Her latest book, Zed, explores the dystopian reality of big tech and the digital meshing of humanity and technology. Hilary Lawson is a philosopher and renowned critic of philosophical realism, best known for his theory of closure, which argues that we close the openness of the world with our thought and language. Ray Tallis is a philosopher, poet, neuroscientist and physician whose philosophical writing has been informed by his medical expertise. His books include Aping Mankind, 
Becoming Animal, and his latest, Seeing Ourselves, Reclaiming Humanity from God and Science. Now, to begin this debate, I would like each speaker to give a brief three-minute presentation of their thoughts on our opening question. Have we ignored Wittgenstein's suggestion that we cannot express meaningfully how language and our theories relate to the world? Ray, would you like to start? Thank you very much indeed. And we begin with Wittgenstein. Um, he himself, ironically, did have a theory initially of the relationship between language and the world. This was his so-called picture theory of propositions. He believed that things that you said could be about things in the world because the things that you said and the things in the world shared some properties. This was a so-called picture theory of propositions, but what they shared was a logical form. He, however, rejected that and acknowledged that language, in fact, had many ways of relating to the world. After all, there were different parts of speech. You know, a dog relates to the world in one way and the word the in quite another. And speech served different functions, something that was picked up by the philosopher J.L. Austin, who didn't actually entirely approve of Wittgenstein, but you, some of you may be familiar with his emphasis on uh, speech as being the source of acts. So much for the relationship between uh, language and the world. Well, what about theories relating to the world? Well, it seems in principle rather unlikely there's going to be a general theory connecting theories with the world, a general theory about the relationship between theories and the world. There are, after all, different sorts of theory and different sorts of world. I mean, there are physical theories about the physical world, and the very notion of the physical world may be rather naive. And then there are social theories about the social realm. So there's unlikely to be an overall theory about how those two relate or how indeed they fail to relate. Uh, we also have a problem that certainly has preoccupied me, that as theories become more general, so they sort of lose not only particularity, which by definition they do by being general, but also content. They become almost exsanguinated. Measurement, for example, reduces what is out there to numbers. So we end up with a mathematical portrait of the world, which is, as I said, essentially exsanguinated. I mean, E equals MC squared is a very, very fine equation, but it's not exactly, uh, as it were, a good description of the world. It's hardly the description of an enticing tourist destination. And having said that, uh, we can have a distinguishing theories that seem to be true or truer, and theories that are clearly wrong or less right. Um, and there are at least two criteria for making that distinction. First of all, true or truer theories have much greater predictive power. And secondly, true or truer theories enable us to manipulate the world uh, directly or indirectly through artifacts based on those theories. In other words, they greatly enhance our agency. How about you. you, Joanna? What do you think about the question? Have we ignored Wittgenstein's suggestion that we cannot express meaningfully how language and our theories relate to the world? Um, well, so I don't know who we is in the question. Um, and uh, of course, it's referring, it has this kind of echoes and this past within it. And this brings me to Borges's definition of language, which is a set of symbols whose use among its speakers assumes a shared past. Um, and I think that's a really fundamental aspect of language. Whenever we make a proposition, it has all of these kind of echoes, associations, buried traces. So for that reason and many others, I would ask personally for lots of angst about language. I think the question suggests perhaps we've lost a certain amount of angst about language. I sort of love angst, maybe, and that's the kind of situation in literature, which is the sort of uh, thing that I kind of work in. The situation's very odd. You know, each one of us is a unique individual. 
speaking a communal ancient language, we're given no choice, we're inducted into this system of murmurs and squeaks from birth. And it's a system that goes back to millennia, long buried ages. Um, and our consciousness co-evolves with our acquisition of language. So there's not a kind of pristine original self that we can return to that can be stripped of this language. So we talk about language from deep within it and with language deep within us as well. And to use another metaphor stolen from Borges, it's a labyrinth, you could say, um, which he steals from the Greeks, of course. Um, it's a man-made contrivance of great power. It doesn't give us a God's eye view, I don't believe. Um, by using words, we don't become deities. You know, words are good, but they're not that good. Also, words are not enough. There's more in 15 minutes of consciousness than the whole of Shakespeare, as Stevenson said. Um, and I think a totally controlled language, a rigid propagandist language can bind thoughts. And you see that in regimes that seek to prevent things being said or even thought. So we need unmolested language, as Toni Morrison said. Um, and it's very interesting about Wittgenstein. You could say, as, as Ray was saying, you know, early Wittgenstein perhaps is is um, angst and maybe late Wittgenstein, there's more love. You know, he says that meaning is primarily use or maybe I'm trying to now bind Wittgenstein into my love angst theory of language. Um, but I'll, I'll stop now because I'm pushing at my That's definition. Fantastic. Of Thank, Thank you, John. And Hilary, have we ignored Wittgenstein's suggestion that we cannot express meaningfully how language and our theories relate to the world? Well, as Joe was saying, I think it depends on who the we is there. I, I think it's certainly true that in a large chunk of um, the academy uh, that uh, the Wittgensteinian conclusion that we're not able to describe uh, the relationship between language and the world has been ignored. I, I think that that probably is the case, uh, as realism is maybe the dominant dominant story, and that's certainly not uh, to have taken his conclusion on board. I think it's worth have a slightly different version than, than the way that Ray conveyed the shift in Wittgenstein's position. It seems to me that his his position, where he said we couldn't talk about uh, the relationship between language and the world directly followed from his early uh, uh, outlook. So he set about trying to provide an account of that relationship. And certainly, in my view, it is, is one of the best uh, attempts of trying to do that. But he concludes that it's not possible. And he includes that it's not possible for underlying logical grounds that language cannot somehow step outside of itself to catch sight of the relationship to something that is other than language. It's got no way of doing that. And so that's where he ends up. However, I don't buy uh, Wittgenstein's conclusion that therefore we should just give up on metaphysics because he does hold a metaphysical position in his later, later writing, I would argue. So that the only way un we understand his writing like the investigations is to impute to him a, an overall philosophical view, namely that we're wandering around in a language game. Now that's a metaphysical view. It's to stand back and have seen humans on the one side in this world of language and the world somewhere else, and to have somehow described how it ultimately is. So I don't think that Wittgenstein really does carry through on his, on his claim to have abandoned metaphysics. But nevertheless, I, I think the traditional note of metaphysics that existed pre the linguistic turn, uh, we can't return to. And in that sense, I think we have uh, forgotten some of those insights of the linguistic term, precisely because it leads us into a very difficult space. That's very interesting. I suppose one of the questions we will be exploring today is what is metaphysics? 
But um, to begin with our first theme, now that we have a guide to what your positions are, we seem to use language to navigate the world we find ourselves in. Yet, many argue, language does not connect to the world in any secure or concrete way. In fact, as you said, Ray, Wittgenstein's Tractatus explores that very question. What is the connection between language and the world? And Joanna, would you like to start with this one? Thank you. Um, well, yes, to pick up on what um, both speakers have been saying, and um, just Hillary's remarks specifically just now about exactly this, this kind of game in language, if you like, that the self is here and the world is there. I mean, that's a huge assumption and not part of every tradition. If we look at Eastern traditions of theology and philosophy, there's a notion of the knower and the field and everything is much more intertwined. Um, and also, actually, it's not even borne out by the language. So again, I was saying about uses and echoes. Um, if we look at world as a term, um, it's an old English word um, coming from where meaning man and eld meaning age. So it means the age of man. And it's actually distinguished from, you know, we might think of a Greek term like cosmos, um, which is used by Pythagoras, for example, to mean the kind of starry firmament, firmament you know, the, the stuff definitely beyond um, the world of humans. So, uh, you know, I think, again, a lot of these kind of metaphorical uses, um, original uses that get buried, I think they're really important. And if we're asking ourselves, you know, is language of the world of humans? I mean, I think that's a kind of tautological question. It definitely expresses um, you know, human experience in the world. And again, are we going to attain with it this sort of pristine, immaculate, oats rationalist portrait of absolutely everything? Again, I'd think, you know, language is not the sum total of everything. Um, as D.H. Lawrence said, books are not life, you know, they're tremulations on the ether, which is a classic kind of phrase from Lawrence where he's trying to use language for, you know, in his own kind of way. Um, I want to say one thing, which is there's an, an interesting theory that um, Owen Barfield presents to try and, um, in a way, get away from this binary position that you're either over here with everything over there. And that's this idea that the world as we know it kind of co-evolves with consciousness. And so that kind of notion that there is this sort of presence of an observer that's incredibly um, fundamental to these, these metaphors when we talk about the kind of conscious experience of the world. Hilary, would you like to jump in here about the connection between language and the world? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of, bit of a big question, isn't it? Yeah. I, 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 I mean, there are some, some points, and I have in common with, with, with Joe, that I would be closer to the familiar uh, philosophical language of, of uh, language in the world. I would encourage us to think of language as a, a metaphor for the world. And the puzzle, uh, from my point of view, is why are those metaphors successful? You know, a, a simple realist account uh, has at least got a ready-made uh, explanation for why our theories work, namely they do describe how things are. And uh, I've spent quite a bit of time trying to demonstrate why we don't need that in order to get metaphors to work. So if we... If we look up at the stars, we can identify an indefinite number of patterns. In fact, there are many more patterns you could make in the stars than there are um, uh, particles in the, in the scientific universe. So a lot. <laughs> and you can take any one of those patterns. We don't, we don't think they're real. When we look up and 
and we see the plough, we don't think there really is a plough in the sky. We think, well, we can hold it as a plough. We can hold those stars as a plough. And, but that doesn't mean to say the fact that it's not real doesn't mean to say that it's not very powerful. So if, if you hold those stars as a plough, you can point to the star beyond the end of it. You can, you can pattern all of the stars in the sky. You can use those patterns to navigate around the world uh, and to identify the ones that are different and, uh, and that don't fit into those patterns with things that we now call planets. But we don't have to imagine that those patterns are the universe. Now, I would argue that is the relationship for all of language, that all of language functions at that level. And of course, the things around us, we have this very visceral sense that they really are there, but I think that they are ways of our holding what I would refer to as the openness of the world. And I think that that's the sort of relationship. Uh, so would your criterion for what's a good model and what's a bad model, would that be the openness to the world, that a good model is one that stays open to the world? Is that what you're thinking um, or not? Uh, no, I think there's more constraint there than that. So I, I think that if you adopt a, a, a metaphor, which is not helpful, doesn't enable you to achieve your outcome, then uh, you abandon it because it just doesn't work very well. And, and you, the metaphor is constrained by the stuff out there, but, and therefore the stuff out there in a way is, is functioning to limit the capacity of that metaphor to work. But we can't say what it is about what is out there that is constraining the metaphor because that would have been to have jumped outside of our metaphors. We have to operate within them and then modify them in the light of how they work. And so we can refine them ever better and ever more precisely. But we shouldn't imagine that, you know, we, that, that we've actually arrived. You know, that, that I think there's a sort of hubris involved in that. We don't need that. We can have fantastically powerful uh, metaphors that we can improve on without uh, imagining that we are God and we've seen how it ultimately is. Great. And what do you think, Ray? I'm disappointingly, I'm agreeing with everyone at the moment, very disappointing. But essentially, it seems to me that what we are all agreed on is there is a kind of dialectical interaction between human consciousness or the self and the world. They're not independently emerging entities. And also that our theories don't, as it were, to use the familiar phrase, carve nature at the joints. We do, to some extent, construct our theories out of subsets of experiences, rather in the way that um, Hillary said, um, he referred to patterns. And one of the strongest lines of argument in current philosophy of science is that what science does is identify real patterns. And what's a real pattern as opposed to merely an imposed one? Well, for many philosophers of science, a real pattern is one that cannot be compressed further, that's not subject to algorithmic compression. The trouble is the end stage of that is that the patterns that are described are purely mathematical. And we end up with a notion of the universe as just composed of mathematical structures. We have industrial strength Pythagoreanism, if you like. And I think that's the problem of a realistic a realism about science that's based in the notion of patterns being real. So again, I reiterate my disappointment that I'm agreeing with my fellow panelists at this stage. Yeah. So you think the same problem is actually a problem for science, not just for philosophy, and what, what is considered real in science, not just what is considered real in philosophy or for philosophy, right? I, I think it's a, a, a problem for scientists who feel they're metaphysicians. I don't think it's a problem for science itself. Physics hasn't been held back by third-rate metaphysics as propounded by uh, amateur metaphysicians who are scientists as well. Um, 
on the whole, science is doing very nicely, thank you, without the assistance of metaphysics. But once the scientists claim to be metaphysicians, then I do think they're in, uh, they, they run into problems. And we can give some pretty spectacular examples of metaphysicians who really, uh, or scientific or quasi, scientific quasi-metaphysicians who uh, really um, rather miss the point about the nature of what they're doing. I wonder really whether you, whether you think that the scientists really have got rid of the metaphysics there. I mean, isn't the situation that that Newton and Einstein and Heisenberg and so forth all have their own uh, metaphysics uh, and they're different and sometimes they're incompatible and and uh, it's not always explicit, but it's certainly there. So And so I don't think science gets rid of metaphysics. It's just operating within... A particular framework, which I would say is, you know, some background metaphor which is assumed, and yeah. then seeking models within that. If if scientists imagine, and not all of them do for, for certain, but if scientists imagine that they're uncovering real patterns in the world, then I would challenge that. I, I, I think this is, as I say, a form of hubris. Uh, I have no problem with scientists having their implicit metaphysics, just like I have my implicit folk physics when I navigate myself around the world. I think my Problem is when scientists say that our implicit metaphysics actually trumps any future development of metaphysics from within philosophy. I think that's when we have a real problem. That's the hubris, I think, that we would agree is undesirable. Mm. I mean, this, this takes us directly to our um, second theme, because one could say that if what you're saying is, if the nature of, um, of reality is not what we traditionally imagine as something there to be uncovered, then does that mean that all our descriptions about the nature of reality are, are simply nonsense? Um, well, so again, let's start. What, what do we mean by reality? I mean, I'm just going to stick to this etymological pursuit. Um, and, that, you know, if you go to a dictionary that says the state of things as they are rather than as they're imagined to be. Um, and as we've heard already, you know, there's how do we set the line? Where do we place the line between the state of things as they are and the point at which they're imagined to be? Uh, who's going to define that from what perspective? Um, and as soon as we put them into language, as we're talking about scientific metaphor, um, is there going to be some kind of imagining? Um, and I think, I mean, if we're talking about scientific metaphor, I think the story of the Big Bang is an interesting example of this, which um, you know, if we look at that very briefly, you have Georges Lemaitre, who's a Belgian Catholic priest and a mathematician and astronomer. And, um, and he emerges in the 20s with the, what we now call the Big Bang Theory. Um, he doesn't use that metaphor. He calls it the cosmic egg cracking open, which is this ancient creation metaphor that brings in Babylonian, Greek, um, Egyptian civilizations. Um, but he changes that. You know, he adapts the metaphor because in that metaphor, the kind of creator deity is within the cosmic egg. Um, but Lemaitre feels that, you know, God is essentially hidden in, um, you know, creation. And so what he's announcing is the kind of arrival of, he says, the beginning of the world from the point of view of quantum theory. So he's changing these metaphors. Um, he's advancing this theory. Um, the, the term Big Bang comes in with Fred Hoyle in 1949, uh, who detracts from the theory. He doesn't believe it. And part of the reason, interestingly, why Hoyle doesn't, go for it is he says it's too much like a creation myth. He finds this similarity of metaphor is suspicious to him. And so I think this, uh, you know, to use this as a case study in a way of the question you're asking, do we believe that there's a fundamental reality there which we arrive at by different points and the matrix managed to synthesize 
you know, a religious view and a view within quantum physics? Or do we believe there's kind of no eternal reality, no God, but an underlying physical reality, which he's right about? Um, and this is similar with Newton, as the others were saying, you know, there's a lot of God in Newton, but there's also the laws that we now take as manifest and fundamental. Or do we think like, well, it's all too much of a similarity. There's a kind of predictive metaphor going on. And I think these are immensely complex questions we're trying to debate in language. I suppose one, one way in which reality, uh, one could say, one could argue that reality is there, is that it verifies or it falsifies whatever our predictions or models are. Um, what do you think, Hilary? Of course, that is the standard um, traditional view of science, that the experiments verify or falsify what's the case. Mm. Uh, different people have taken view of whether they verify them or falsify them or both. But uh, I, I would take the view that, that, that that's never the case that um, uh, experiments don't, uh, don't definitively verify or falsify things. If, if they appear to falsify things, then all that the scientist does is just modify their theory slightly to say, oh, there's some other force acting, there's some other thing going on, there's some other reason why this hasn't been as it is. And indeed, in some sense, that's how the scientific metaphor evolves. So I don't think reality is that sort of definitive touchstone, which means that certain theories uh, are, are right and certain things aren't. The theoretical frame is modified in the light of the way that it operates. But I would want to just say in, in an overall way, you know, I am a, a, a critic of realism uh, and have made that case. But that, that doesn't mean to say that I, I'm a critic of the scientific methodology. In fact, I, I, I'm a, a great proponent of taking our models and, and testing them in, in as rigorous a fashion as we should do. And indeed, my, my, my criticism of realism is that it's not rigorous enough, that, that it sort of uh, um, it allows this overall metaphysical story and doesn't really examine it and say whether it's the case. And so I think that we have to take our, our metaphors for the world and really examine them very precisely. Do they work? In what ways do they work? In what ways do they not work? How should we modify our theories in order to improve them, but without thinking that they are somehow arriving at the truth? What they're doing is we're making better models, and, and there, there will always be new ones. There will always be ways in which our models break down because they're not the same thing as the stuff out there. There's always an impossible gap uh, between the two, and we'll always find those gaps in any model. Right. I mean... Going back to, to the question about whether that means that our descriptions are simply nonsense, right? Um, Ray, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think what's haunting our discussion is the notion of the given. The idea that something that is out there, which we can access without contaminating it with our means of accessing it, whether it's our language, our sensory apparatus, our tools of investigation, there's this myth not the myth of the given, but the idea of the given, the uncontaminated given, which corresponds to the reality that we are, as it were, approximating asymptotically as our science grows. And I think that's a prob problem for all sorts of reasons. Partly because en route to this so-called given, you chuck away all sorts of things that are really undeniably important. Secondary qualities, being hot, being yellow, being green or whatever, all there you go. And then quite important things like toothache disappear as well. And even more important things like embarrassment, existentially experienced reality, all of those things disappear 
en route to this notion of the given. And when you arrive at, at, at the given, that given is a very, very, is what I guess behind it also the other notion that haunts uh, idea of, of science gradually approximating to what we may call reality is the idea of the view from nowhere, which we are all of us familiar with mm. from Thomas Nagel. The idea that you begin with a perspectival view that gives you just the front or the back of something or something in a particular angle from a particular place. And that through science, you gradually progress to this view from nowhere. The trouble is the view from nowhere ends up as being the view of nothing. So E equals MC square, squared doesn't really give you a view of anything. As I say, as, as a description of the planet, it wouldn't make it a very universe, a very enticing tourist destination. We are haunted by the notion of the given as an asymptote of inquiries. The notion of the given as that which we, we somehow unpeel without in any way encountering it or contaminating with the process by which we get to know it. So there's a serious paradox there. And again, I fear that I'm rather in agreement with my fellow panelists. I wonder whether, um, you know, this idea of nonsense and, and, and Ray, you mentioned at the beginning, the picture theory. And I wonder whether it might, whether you all think that it might be helpful to change the concept of what qualifies as sense in the first place and therefore as nonsense. After all, as, as Ray said, Wittgenstein was working with the picture theory of meaning where for for a proposition to have sense, it must be what we call bipolar, right? To be able to be in principle true or false. Do you think that maybe um, changing the, what, what it is for something to have sense would uh, kind of be a way to answer that question? I think you've all, I think you've all gone for the nature of reality, right? You kind of, you've all questioned that. And now I'm inviting you to question sense, what it means for something to have sense. With an angle from J.L. Austin, mm -hmm. uh, he had the notion of the trouser word, that essentially one word of a pair wears the trousers. And in the case of reality, we only invoke it really in the context of thinking that something is unreal, whether it's an illusion or a dream or a mistake. So almost as if uh, the notion of reality is parasitic on that of unreality. And I would come to your, you mentioned nonsense, and in many ways, nonsense is something that, as it were, is what evokes our desire to define what counts as sense. And I wonder whether we can establish the nature of sense or nonsense independently of each other. I mean, that's a totally unoriginal thought, but I just wondered about that. Yeah. Right. Perhaps that connects to Joanna. Sorry, when what you said earlier about the um, use theory of meaning, Joanna, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts yeah, about that? Absolutely. Sense? And yeah. this is actually, absolutely. I mean, first of all, in reference to Wittgenstein, I was thinking rather guiltily that when you write a novel, what you're really trying to do is sort of corrupt his picture theory and you kind of try and induce um, kind of perceptions of non-facts in the mind of the reader. I was thinking that's a sort of guilty process of, you know, instead of trying to, uh, you know, render facts, you know, in, in the mind. But I would say yeah, in terms of nonsense, such an important question because Again, you know, it's part of this binary construction within language, which is so fundamental and, you know, again, so culturally ancient that it leads us all the time. Um, and in a sense, if you refuse a lot of the binary structures for debate, it's almost as if you will make no sense in them because they're so compelling and they're so sort of seen as inevitable to that. So as we're saying with, you know, within the West, there's this notion subject object you know, self-world, these kind of ideas that these 
things are uh, automatically binary, which are hugely questionable. Um, so I think, you know, we're kind of conscripted into a certain amount of nonsense that masquerades as sense, if you like. And the whole thing is extremely, again, sort of um, difficult to analyze from any position beyond it. Um, and words change meaning so utterly. Um, I was thinking this about, so language as a mechanical magic, um, this sort of system of symbols, which has this enormous power. And so it's mechanical in that it has verbs and nouns, but it can induce these great states of being. And as I was saying in my initial remarks, if you're a totalitarian regime, you want to use it to induct people into a particular sort of consciousness that suits you. Um, Klemperer's book about the Nazification of language, the language of the Third Reich, for example, Orwell, you know, dramatizes this in 1984. Um, so this is a kind of immensely powerful process. But if you look at the root in the, again, hypothetical Proto-Indo-European language, the root terms of magic and machine, um, the root term is the same, it's mag. But we'd seen these, we'd see these terms now within the scientific worldview as completely polarized. So, you know, it's so interesting, we're constantly moved around. And I think, you know, some of the movements I don't think we're conscious of, we can't be conscious of because they're so intrinsic. And I think that means we are in a kind of strange dream, a sort of dream that you're aware is a dream, but you can't entirely wake up from. I think that's a, a, what happens to us. Right. That's very, very interesting. Um, Hilary, I'd like, you would like to jump in here and yeah. say something. I, I just like to say, I think the sense of nonsense uh, story was, was largely about the aim at the beginning of the 20th century to try and create a perfect logic or a, a perfect language based on logic. And that enabled uh, the people who had that as an idea to imagine that if things didn't fall in with their notion of what an ideal logic would be, that that could be then classified as nonsense. Now, uh, I think you could make a case that Wittgenstein moved away from that in, in, in his later work. He doesn't really have that nonsense view, although he does hold to the idea we shouldn't engage in metaphysics. But uh, I, I would want to argue that, that that idea that we want to turn uh, language into a formal logic was, was a mistake uh, and that uh, that's not what's going on. The sort of account that I've been giving that language provides us with metaphors that we can use to engage with the world and we can refine them means that for me, uh, in a sense, is about there is sense to a uh, phrase or sentence if the uh, person who hears it uh, is able to um, uh, realize it, that is, that they can hold the world like that. Um, so long as they can, they can, they can, they can use it. They can hold the world like that. Then it seems to me you can't then come along with a set of logic and say no, 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 no. That that's nonsense. And uh, and in that sense, you know, nonsense is a bit closer to the you know Lear notion of nonsense that you actually just make up words that uh, you you can't you can't make a closure of in my in my vocabulary that you you can't you don't know how to hold them you don't you don't know what to do with them. Right. That's great. The, the problem is, if we, if we follow what um, you three seem to um, be thinking about, um, what do we make of, of, of metaphysics? What do we do with the, the kind of metaphysical side of, of philosophy? And one could say metaphysical questions have been explored for thousands of years, yet you know, to an outside observer, it might not seem like there has been much tangible progress. So 
um, can we still do metaphysics if, if reality is to be seen in the way you have discussed? And, and if we can, can we make progress in the study of metaphysics or is that an illusion? Well, so I, again, I, I often ask philosophers what metaphysics means. And it's, it's, again, it's a fascinating term because it has this anecdote originating um, to it, you know, about possibly Andronicus of Rhodes um, filing or arranging Aristotle's work um, and describing, you know, 14 books as the ones after the physical ones, um, you know, so creating this term, Tarmeta, Tarphysica, with apologies for my accent. And so, again, it comes from this specific moment in time, possibly as ever clouded by history, but this human moment in time. And now, of course, we're talking, you know, again, in these sort of, um, you know, brilliantly sort of metaphorical ways of something that might deduce, you know, the ultimate meaning of things, um, a kind of ultimate truth. Um, and I think, again, I was thinking of what Owen Barfield said of early Wittgenstein, actually. He said, look, I know what he means and why he's you know, saying what he's saying, because however much you turn your head, you know, you can never see the back of your head. You're not going to be omniscient. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean you have to sort of abandon everything. And again, I think this is about hierarchies that apply in debate and in language and kind of old conventions of hierarchy. You know, that I, I think we can usefully resist the idea that the God's eye view is, you know, the ultimate kind of teleological pursuit and that all other views are a bit of a failure. Um, and that if only we could think like God's not humans, then it'd be much better. Um, and that's a bit like sort of living your life feeling that things are rubbish because you're only seeing the shadows flickering on the wall of Plato's cave, you know, and not the perfect eternal realities. Um, or feeling that you're not truly alive because you're not going to be eternally alive. And actually, I'd ask those who are in this virtual tent with us, you know, how many of them believe that they have eternal souls and will be alive forever in all you know, ranges and versions of reality? And if there are people who don't believe that they're eternally alive, do they believe that they are alive now and very much alive and having a very lived and vital experience? Um, so, you know, I think, again, it's an odd um, kind of manifestation um, of, of, of sort of this totalized view that that must be the most desirable view, the ultimate view. I think it's, again, another sort of fantasy within language, I suspect. Right. I really like how you bring out those two versions of what it is to be eternal or what it is to be real, whether something can be real here or whether we need to think of a realm outside, you know, the world and, and language. Um, Ray, what are your thoughts on this about metaphysics and whether there can be progress in metaphysics? There are at least two questions bundled there. One is whether metaphysics makes progress in contrast to e.g. science, and the other whether progress should be the marker of the value of metaphysics. At a metaphysical level, I don't believe science does make progress, but that's uh, another matter. But clearly, in other respects, it most certainly does make progress. And all of us agree that, and I am uh, admiring of science as the greatest cog human cognitive achievement and have no doubt about that. So uh, what, what about the progress of metaphysics? Well, there was an interesting paper published by David Chalmers a few years ago, and he made a comparison between the 20 odd problems that David in mathematics that David Hilbert set out in the year 1900 as those which needed to be solved. And the measure of the solution uh, that they were solved was that there was a consensus about them. And by a few decades later, pretty well all of them, there had been a consensus. Contrast philosophy, where do people believe in dualism, materialism, property dualism, substance dualism, the answer is there's still the same quantity of disagreement. So clearly in that sense, philosophy doesn't make progress. 
But why, as a medic, do I find metaphysics probably the most interesting thing to engage in? It's not because it makes progress in the sense that science makes progress, but it's basically a way of unpeeling our gaze. And I, it, it, I guess it's useless, but then so is being awake or being in love useless. They're both useless, but actually they happen to be what I would regard as the point of being alive. So in that sense, to measure, yes, we agree that metaphysics doesn't make progress like science makes progress, but gosh, that's not the yardstick by which we should measure the value of metaphysics. Right. Going back to, to, to the question of, of uselessness or, or usefulness, um, I'm just thinking if, if metaphysics is about what, asking the question, what, some, what is something? Do we all agree that that's a way to, to frame uh, what metaphysics is? It is extremely useful in the sense that it is the only way in which we can navigate the world and deepen our, our relation to, to the world, to ourselves, to others by asking what something really is. Is that, would you think that that's not a way, a good way to think of metaphysics? If you think of metaphysics as sort of um, Aristotle's original definition, which is being qua being. And that really doesn't cone in on the particular. It doesn't help just to say that glasses are made of atoms and atoms are made of various other subatomic particles and so on. So in that sense, I don't think it offers answers to those kinds of questions. I mean, one of the most profound metaphysical questions is indeed, what is metaphysics? You know, what is it trying to do? And for me, it's trying to unpeel one's gaze in the broadest way, try and become unparochial, try and escape the parish of my own consciousness without falling into a torrent of numbers and other things that science, thank you, science, um, does. So th that's how I see metaphysics. I mean, our discussion we've just had about the relationship between reality, language, and the world, and, and the idea of the given, that to me is a very good example of metaphysics. Now, I should add as well, of course, I couldn't, I mean, the, the, the whole, uh... You know, again, the sort of early Wittgenstein, late Wittgenstein difference. You know, I, I think it's wonderful when Wittgenstein sort of kicks back and says, let's discuss art, ethics, you know, religion. That's sort of, you know, that, I mean, of course, these are, how can you, you know, it's, I mean, it's sort of inconceivable that you might, you know, almost um, disallow yourself from having discussions about art. You know, I mean, it was incredible. So if we adopt a kind of pleasure theory of, of thought, and philosophy and, you know, allow ourselves these sort of, um, you know, these these pursuits that are also incredible. As, as Hillary's saying, you know, if you don't test everything, um, then nothing is dynamic and things become kind of ossified and stymied. So I think it's vitally important. I should make a strong case for all discussion. I think it's more the, the claims being made. And I, I think in this we all agree, um, you know, the idea that you, you arrive at this sort of glittering, oat rationalist sort of view um, and then everyone else is sort of told to sort of pack up and stop. Um, you know, I think that would be a shame, you know, on many, many levels. Probably also, as, as Hilary and Ray are saying, for the, the pursuit of scientific knowledge, you know, which is obviously hugely important. Great. So it is as if we're, we're kind of having two ways of thinking of metaphysics. One is the ab abstracting and, and losing the, the, the particulars. And, and I think you all agree that that's the problematic way, right? That kind of leaves the world. And then the other way could be a way of asking what something is of doing philosophy, but in a way that stays open to the particular. So the particular 
languages to um, the, the differences, what the later Bhutan calls teaching differences. On that note, and with the language I have available, Ray, Joanna, Hilary, thank you so much for a very insightful and enjoyable discussion. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.